All right, it's Foghorn time, and that means it is time for the Cavish Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Our podcasts this week are brought to you by Huntington Ingalls Industry and Raytheon Missiles and Defense. For more information, please visit RaytheonMissilesAndDefense.com and HuntingtonIngalls.com. Coming up. When it comes to providing combat systems for the United States Navy, there is no more important company than Lockheed Martin. Producers and integrators of the Aegis combat system installed on nearly every major U.S. warship. But the company also makes missile launch systems and laser weapons, competes for U.S. and foreign ship programs, and has a major role in integrating combat systems on virtually every surface warship program in the United States. We'll hear more about that from a key company player. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. For the first time since 2008, there is no significant Zumwalt-class construction work going on at General Dynamics Bath Iron Works. The third and last ship in the DDG-1000 program, Lyndon B. Johnson, DDG-1002, sailed away from the shipyard in Bath, Maine on January 12th, bound for the Huntington Ingalls shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. There, the Johnson is to undergo, undergo final fitting out of her combat systems before proceeding to San Diego, home port of sister ships Zumwalt and Michael Mansour. Bath will now concentrate on building Flight 2A and Flight 3 Arleigh Burke-class destroyers, while the U.S. Navy is working on plans to install hypersonic weapons on the three Zumwalt-class ships. Meanwhile, some details of the next-generation DDG-X destroyer were revealed by the Navy at the Surface Navy Symposium just outside Washington, D.C. on January 12th. The notional design shown at the show depicted a large surface warship with Spy-6 radars coupled with an Aegis Baseline 10 combat system. Power will be provided via an integrated power system similar to that in the Zumwalt class, with a single power plant feeding both combat and propulsion systems. The ships would have significantly more electrical power than the Burke class, able to power a 150-kilowatt laser weapon. The ship would be armed with hypersonic weapons and possibly carry 12 large missile launcher cells in place of the 32-cell Mark 41 vertical missile launch cells shown in the graphic. Notably, the ship would have the ability to carry out, quote, expanded Arctic operations. The Navy did not provide dimensions or displacement of the ship and did not comment on cost, although some reports indicate the first ship could cost between three and a half and four billion dollars, dropping down to two and a half billion for later ships. It remains to be seen, hopefully whenever the 2023 budget is presented, just when the Navy hopes to begin procurement of the DDGX ships. Speaking of SNA, stopping in to visit the Military Sealift Command display booth at the Surface Navy Association Symposium on January 12th, Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro declared he would like to see more ceremony associated with the delivery and entry into service of new MSC ships. Although Navy owned and directed, MSC ships, which include fleet oilers and large supply ships, are operated by civilian mariners and do not have the traditional commissioning ceremonies of U.S. Navy ships. SecNav seemed earnest in his desire to perhaps create more awareness of the command and its activities. 
In the Indian Ocean region, a three-ship Russian naval group is conducting a series of visits in the area. The Russian Pacific Fleet cruiser Varyag, destroyer Admiral Trubuts, and oiler Boris Brutoma left Vladivostok December 29th to begin the cruise. The trio visited Kochi, India for two days beginning January 13th before moving on to Chabahar, Iran. India's new aircraft carrier Vikrant left its shipyard in Kochi on January 9th to begin a third round of sea trials. The ship, widely known in India as the indigenous carrier, has been under construction since February 2009 and is the first aircraft carrier to be built in the country. India's president and vice president each visited the carrier in recent weeks, underscoring their support for the project. On the historic ship front, the gearing-class World War II air destroyer Orlik will officially have a new home in Jacksonville, Florida. The ship, while being displayed as a museum ship since 2000, first at Orange, Texas, and since 2009 at Lake Charles, Louisiana, has been battered by hurricanes and floods and is now in a floating dry dock at Port Arthur, Texas, undergoing repairs costing about $1.8 million. The city of Jacksonville approved the proposal to move the ship to Florida with funding coming from the state, donors, and loans. The Orlick was commissioned in September 1945 and served the U.S. Navy until 1982 when it was transferred to Turkey. And that's a look at naval news for this week. One of the major exhibitors every year at Service Navy Association is Lockheed Martin. With us today is John Rambo, the vice president and general manager for Lockheed Martin's Integrated Warfare Systems and Sensors business, IWSS. That's part of the rotary and mission systems. Uh, Mr. Rambo, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Chris. It's great to be here with you today. Well, we, we do appreciate it. And uh, you have a really wide, varied portfolio. Um, I know that you're, you, you oversee Lockheed's efforts with Aegis Combat System, Combat Integration Systems work on the Flight 3 destroyers, uh, the, which, are, which are now under construction, the littoral combat sh ship, the Mark 41 vertical launch system, the Helios laser uh, system that, that is already at sea, uh, Spy-1, Spy-7 radars, the multi-mission service combatant for the Saudi Arabians, the systems integrator for Canadian service combatant, and you're competing for all kinds of stuff, including uh, work in Greece. So why don't you just tell us what is on your mind today? What is, what, what, what is first and forefront for integrated warfare systems and sensors right now? Sure. Thanks, Chris. I, you know, really, uh, really great introduction there. I appreciate that. And, and yes, it is, a, it is a broad and diverse portfolio. When you ask what's you know, number one on the list, that is, a, that is a tough question to answer. But I think as we're, as we're heading into SNA, it would be hard to put anything above some of the work that we're doing with the U.S. Navy around the Aegis Combat System and, and the broader, you know, longer term vision for, for what surface Navy combat systems are going to look like. So I'll probably start there. And, you know, really, I think three things that, that we're focused on when we talk about our surface Navy combat systems, you know, it's, it's evolution of the capability itself and the processes around that capability. It's the evolution of the culture of the organization. And then third, it's, it's putting some focus on the future of surface Navy combat systems, the future of Aegis and what that's gonna look like down the road. So maybe I'll just touch this, just briefly on each of those. You know, and first off, you know, we talk about evolving the capability of Aegis and the processes around it. You know, we've been putting a lot of money as a corporation into digital transformation, into implementing DevSecOps processes, 
uh, automated test capabilities, digital twin. And so we've been doing a lot of work to implement some of that digital transformation capability within the, uh, the Aegis program and, and what we call the combat system engineering agent or CSEA role that we play for the Navy. And, and a lot of the focus of that, of that work is really driving toward the implementation of, of baseline 10 for the flight through destroyers. And there's really no higher priority in our relationship with PEOIWS than making sure that, uh, that those flight through destroyers get delivered on time with, uh, with the intended capability for the surface Navy. So, you know, really when you think about baseline 10, it's the most comprehensive evolution ever of the Aegis combat system, a lot of capability going into that baseline. And so we're working really closely, uh, certainly with Admiral Ocano and her team, partnered very tightly with Raytheon as the provider of the radar system for, for those ships to make sure that, that we, uh, to, to use the, the term we use within the program is keep Jack on track. So that's, uh, that's a lot of what we're doing today in terms of the focus on the current capability. Alongside that, we're doing a lot of work on evolving the culture. You know, in my last job, until the, this past January, I spent four years running our undersea Navy business down in Manassas, Virginia. And, you know, there I, I was responsible for, among other things, the, uh, the ARCHI program, which transitioned years ago to a much more rapid capability delivery framework and also more of an open ecosystem kind of model for running the program. And as, as we talked to the Navy and specifically talked to Admiral O'Connor about her vision for the future, certainly she would like to see Aegis evolve to more of an open ecosystem where we have opportunities for small business participation, academia, you know, broader engagement across government. And so we're, we're actively engaged in, in a you know, process of, uh, of opening up the, uh, the program, creating some facility spaces for collaboration and engagement with third parties. And we're also working very hard to drive towards more rapid capability, recognizing that over the next several years, you know, you think about that, that sort of five-year horizon, we recognize that the, the relevance of the Aegis combat system has never been greater, but the criticality of the fleet has never been greater and the need to stay ahead of the adversary is, uh, you know, is acute. And, and so we've got to make sure we're, we're delivering continuous capability at the speed of relevance to stay ahead of the threat. So that's, you know, part of the cultural transformation that we're engaged in. And then as we think about the, the longer term, you know, future of Aegis, you know, how do we evolve the, the core capability to support the surface Navy uh, mission set? How do we continue to provide the BMD capability within Aegis that continues to support the Missile Defense Agency because, you know, their threat space, you know, continues to evolve. And so how do we address advanced threats? How do we look at deployment of Aegis in different, um, you know, in, in, in different environments? So we certainly are going to be looking hard at the defensive bomb and a land-based instantiation of Aegis the configuration there will probably be a little bit different than it would be shipboard, but still the same core capability, that same proven and trusted fire control loop. And we've also been doing a lot of work on virtualized Aegis. So smaller footprint deployments of the Aegis capability. We've been working with a uh, sort of a consortium. What between. What is, I'm sorry, what does that mean virtualized? What virtualized? Uh, virtualized Aegis is really nothing more than taking what today is a pretty large collection of hardware, you know, servers, uh, other, other networked equipment that would be shipboard and taking a lot of that hardware out of the equation and compressing the core capabilities of Aegis into something that could be installed on perhaps a single server. Uh, 
So something that could be much more mobile, something that could be tied to an expeditionary weapon system. So we're working with the Navy and the, and the U.S. Army Rapid Capabilities Office to develop a mobile launching capability based on Mark 41, which would be tied to a scaled down version of Aegis, which is what we would refer to as virtualized Aegis or, or VALS, virtualized Aegis weapon system. Um, so we, we've actually been taking that virtualized Aegis prototype capability to some of the COCOM exercises. Um, we participated in Northern Shield 21 this past year. And actually there we had an airborne version of Aegis that we put in the air and tested out some of the core combat capabilities of Aegis. So trying to take that, that proven capability and take it to other platforms and other domains. So I think that's... You know, I don't want to spend too much time on this one topic, but just a lot of exciting stuff happening in the combat systems area. And I think that's just a quick rundown of what we're doing. The Bulls in the China shop question is, what about littoral combat ship? So apparently we've now had a fix, an approved fix for the propulsion system. Uh, yes. Combat ship and, the, and you were able to successfully deliver the Minneapolis-St. Paul to the Navy late last year. Um, can you give us an update on where that system, where that situation sits right now? Yeah, the situation is actually a really, a really great news story, Chris, and obviously a, a lot of ups and downs over the last 12 months or so as, as we worked through the recognition that we needed to do a redesign of the combining gear for, for LCS 5 and beyond. And we, we worked through that process in partnership with the gear manufacturer, Rank, as well as with the U.S. Navy, and we, we pressure tested that design pretty aggressively and got to something we thought was going to work. We were able to uh, install that, that redesigned uh, combining gear, as you said, on the Minneapolis St. Paul, get that through sea trials and, and through acceptance with the Navy. So that was just a, a terrific success for us. And we saw some really, I think, positive feedback from CNO, you know, following that, that milestone and also following some of the uh, some of the exercises that LCS was able to participate in, particularly around the, uh, the Global 14 exercise series that's been underway. And and some, I think some really favorable comments from CNO about how the LCS has showed up and performed in those exercises and his aspirations to deploy that platform more broadly to the, uh, to the Mediterranean and to potentially to the Western Pacific. So I think we're on the upswing with, uh, with LCS. I was able to get out to San Diego and meet with Admiral Kitchener a couple of months ago and talk a little bit about what we can do to help him with continuing to improve the availability of the platform. And longer term, I think we have a lot of good thoughts on the lethality and, and survivability aspects and, and continue to look forward to working with the Navy on that as well. Uh, John, thanks very much for uh, for joining us. Um, I, I wanted to kind of um, go to um, kind of the horizons that you were talking about. Um, as we talked a little bit about off air, um, as I talk to folks that are in uniform or recently out of uniform, there's this sense, whether it's in PACOM or whether it's in UCOM, that um, the fleet that we have today um, is in pretty good stead. I mean, you know, some readiness notwithstanding, and that the fleet that we are building maybe three decades, two to two and a half to three decades out, they feel pretty good about. But it's that you know, five to 15 year window where you're going to have kind of a combination of the fleet that we have today and maybe new stuff coming online where they're a little less, um, I would say, confident. Um, can you talk a little bit about how within your portfolio, you're working some of those problems and some of the things that you can do, um, you know, with an idea towards speed to, to kind of help uh, fill that gap, if you will? Yeah, sure. I, a couple of things that come to mind, Chris, and I, I guess the two areas I'll touch on would be would be um, in the area of our sensing capabilities, radar systems, and also some of the 
emerging capabilities that are a little bit, you know, a little bit further back on the development curve, but but actually just now on the brink of being of being fielded, and that particularly is in the area of laser weapon systems. So, I guess I'll start off with uh, with the radar systems. A couple of things we're doing, you know, when you think about the number of of EGIS platforms out there domestically and internationally that, that are fielded with the SPY-1 radar today. You've got about 250 platforms out there in total between the U.S. Navy and international partners. And so that SPY-1 radar, while the, you know, the, the production program is, uh, is winding down now, certainly we're going to have those SPY-1 radars fielded for decades to come. And so we've been doing a lot of work on what we can do to improve the capability of the SPY-1 radar to stay relevant. To, uh, to to meet the emerging threats that are that are coming over the next several years, and uh, we've been certainly putting a lot of investment into a program called LNA that's active with the U.S. Navy now. We're under contract with uh, with the Navy for nine uh, Spy One array upgrades, and we're we're working through those in our factory up in New Jersey. But the LNA program is really targeted at the uh, the 21 baseline uh, five Arleigh Burks that are out there today, the order configuration and how we can upgrade the electronics in the SPY-1 radar to provide greater sensitivity to, to address uh, more sophisticated threats. So that's something that, that's you know near term over the horizon. We, we're looking forward to receiving some additional support from the Navy and from MDA to, to jointly move forward and really get those, those baseline five ships up to the full BMD capability in accordance with the, the 2030 missile defense review. Um, one of our other R&D projects we call digital LNA, which is to look at the baseline nine capabilities that uh, baseline nine platforms that are, that are gonna continue to have SPY-1 radars. And this would be a slightly less invasive, you know, call it putting a, a digital back end onto a SPY-1 radar to again, improve the capabilities for the, for the ships that are, that are configured with baseline nine. So that's something where you're looking at a, you know, we kind of stepped back and said, how do we look for a low cost, high payoff, quick turnaround solution to keep SPY-1 relevant? And, and that's kind of what we've been doing there. And then as you look a little bit further over the horizon, you know, we're, we're in the process now of, of fielding the SPY-7 technology. You're, you're probably familiar with the long range discrimination radar that we've been developing with the Missile Defense Agency. We just celebrated in December the initial fielding of the long range discrimination radar up in, uh, in clear Alaska. So that capability has now officially been fielded. And the LRDR, you know, contains that course by seven technology. So it's, a, it's officially out there and fielded now. And we, we have contracts with uh, also with Japan, Spain and Canada for SPY-7 for, uh, for sea-based capabilities. So when you think about, you know, where SPY-7 now is, is fielded and planned to be fielded, we have MDA with the land-based ballistic missile defense application. Japan will be fielding a sea-based ballistic missile defense capability of SPY-7. Spain is, uh, is going to be acquiring a sea-based uh, for, for the uh, AEW mission, as well as Canada with their Canadian surface combatant. So a total of 24 systems, 91 arrays uh, of SPY-7 currently planned across uh, across those customer sets. So whether you're talking about some of the near-term work we can do for the, uh, for the U.S. Surface Navy with SPY-1 or some of the other applications for our newer SPY-7 technology, I think a lot, uh, a lot going on there. And SPY-7 will really bring, I think, some real, some real benefits to the customers who are acquiring it. We, we have inside that, that radar, whether you're talking about a 60-foot by 60-foot array 
for the MDA up in Alaska, or whether you're talking about a much smaller configuration for Spain or Canada. Every one of those radars is built on uh, the exact same sort of shoebox size building block that we call a subarray suite. And you can configure those subarray suites in any size array that you like and, uh, and really leverage that, that, uh, that commonality and the economies of scale to acquire the technology in a way that makes most sense for the platform and for the application. And so, so, so I'm sorry. So, so, so spy seven in, mm-hmm. in, in, in configuration is not unlike the spy six radar Raytheon's radar, which is, which is, it's a different radar, Roger that, but in terms of being scalable and a new radar that you're having to integrate into the existing Aegis combat system. So just if, if, if I could briefly talk about spy six, which is the Raytheon system to Raytheon radar, but it's integrated into your combat system. So that's correct. So you have several ships under construction now, which are going to start fielding that radar, and it's going to be on on things from aircraft carriers then down to small combat small combatants. Can you talk about where you are in Spy Six real quick? Well, where we are right now is you know we're we're you know we're focused on the um, you know the flight threes, the the fielding of baseline ten, and baseline ten, as I talked about earlier, is the baseline that uh, is being integrated to Spy Six. So the integration is not complete. We're working through that process now with uh, with Raytheon and PEOIWS. And as I said, there's there's no higher priority in our business than making sure those flight threes uh, get to see you know on time with the intended capability. So that's. That's where uh, where Spy Six would touch the Aegis combat system. We we also will be integrating for Japan, for Spain, for Canada. All of those Spy Seven capabilities will also be integrated into the uh, Aegis combat system as we are going through that process for uh, for the Flight Threes for the U.S. Navy. Certainly, we're, we're also working through that same process for the other customers that I mentioned for Spy Seven. You've done a good job, uh, John, of of hitting on um, you, you know the things that you're working on for the U.S. Navy. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the projects that you are working for uh, the Canadian Navy? Um, you, you know, there's quite a bit of activity that you're doing with the Canadian Navy and other partners. Um, can you talk a little bit about those uh, specifically, the Type 26, and then you know maybe some of the lessons learned that y- you guys, you know, when you work with partner navies, how that kind of helps uh, overall with allies and partners, you know, their ability to be ready for the future. Sure. Yeah, I, I absolutely can. You know, the, the partnership with Canada has been a really exciting journey. And, you know, we've hit some pretty impressive milestones on that program over the past year. So just, you know, working through the, the startup of the contract, obviously, we're partnered with Irving Shipbuilding up there for, for ship construction. Um, BAE is working with us on the, you know, is working with Lockheed Martin on the ship design. And it's been a it's been a terrific partnership with the Canadian government to get that program up and running. So the, I guess the most significant milestone I can talk about is the uh, the entry into preliminary design review, which happened right before the end of last calendar year. So you know PDR for a program this broad and this complex is going to go on for several months. We'll, we'll wrap that up sometime in the first half of uh, of this year. But getting into that that design review was uh, was a pretty big deal in terms of locking down requirements and, and overall you know timelines for, for the program and trying to get to a point where we can cut steel in the, in the 2024 timeframe. So, so we're, we're in a pretty, uh, pretty aggressive sprint right now on the program, but I think a lot of the, you know, the early discussions about the configuration of the ship, nailing down the detailed requirements, trying to lock in a, an integrated master schedule for the program. A lot of that work now and that heavy lifting is behind us. 
And as, as I'm sure you're aware on these international programs, there's a, there's a delicate balance between the importance of in, including local industry, the importance of making sure we get the, the naval requirements right, and also making sure that we conform to the, uh, to the budgetary expectations that the customer has. So I think in terms of those macro level objectives, you know, the program is, is tracking very well. And we're just we're knocking down the, the you know the day-to-day program issues as you would on any uh, large complex um, program. It's also exciting that we're going to be able to field the Spy 7 technology on that ship. And you, you might have seen that there's also a fairly significant uh, foreign military sales component. There'll be some some uh, pretty heavy Aegis configuration on that ship, which is a little bit uh, a little bit more Aegis heavy than with the original configuration that was proposed. And we worked through that this past year as well. And you saw the notification, you know, about the, uh, the FMS case and, and that going forward with, uh, with Canada. So it'll be a, it'll be a pretty, a pretty strong partnership, I think, between Canada and the U S and, and as you said, Chris, you know, what we, what we gain from these programs, you know, certainly in addition to bringing the capability to the allied government, also, you know, allows them when they're deploying, you know, an Aegis-capable platform, uh, enables them to be very interoperable, engaged, and a force multiplier for the U.S. Navy when we have to, uh, to to go into a conflict situation together. So, so really excited about that partnership. All right. Well, John, I think um, you know we could we could talk to you for a long time. We or, could. I don't know if you could put up with us for that long but uh you have an awful lot uh to, to to cover and i think we just skimmed by but we really appreciate you taking your time today to talk to us we've been uh, speaking with john rambo he's the vice president of lockheed martin's integrated warfare systems and sensors business it's a big business it's got a lot of stuff in it and we really appreciate your time john all right thanks a lot chris it was a real pleasure talking with you today thank you sir all right well Both of us attended the Surface Navy Association Symposium this past week, where we heard a good deal about what might be happening behind the scenes as the Navy prepares for the 2023 budget rollout, now expected around April. Chris, what did you think? So, Chris, I described on Vago's podcast midweek when he asked for an update, I kind of used the analogy of the devil and the angel. Right. So I'll I'll carry that analogy forward Uh, as the on the angel side, I, I appreciated the fact that, uh, you, you know, everybody um, was there given the, you know, the fact that we were kind of battling and struggling through uh, another, um, you know, ebb in the, uh, in the pandemic. I, I thought the speeches rhetorically were, were fine, but I was left with just, you know, sort of the wondering and amazement of we've heard all this before. And so what's different? Um, and that's that will be what I ponder and talk to you know colleagues about over the next couple of weeks is trying to figure out um, how are they going to take what is largely the same type of approach um, with minor changes and you know make impacts move the needle uh, when they really haven't been able to do that uh, over the you know last I don't know five to ten years which which you've been hearing about this right down to the fact that I think we've had the same CR continuing resolution hearing you know the same type of hearing we've had that you know many right. times over the last decade so I don't know what's going to be different um, but I'll, I'll stop there and uh, you know I'm, I'm interested in you know what you what your thoughts were well I mean it was it was certainly wasn't the same old service Navy this is a great show it's one of my very favorite shows it's Part of one reason it's fun is it's the first event of the year after the 
the holiday season and things get kind of quiet and people come back and see each other. It's a, it's a good venue. It's, it's intimate. Virtually everybody who's anybody in surface warfare um, tends to be there. Um, it's really a great event. Uh, it was, it was hobbled this year by the pandemic. Uh, attendance was down. Um, it certainly lacked the, I don't know, social opportunities that the show normally has um, with people getting together at receptions and, and, and other things. Um, that, that just wasn't one, one factor this year. And that, that is too bad. It might've been nicer to, to postpone it, but, but be that as it may, it, um, it, they did have a show. People did come. Um, certainly the second, the second half was there. Um, that was good. Um, but again, the rhetoric that you're hearing, same old, same old. Um, you can't keep coming to uh, one of the problems with a show in January is any year they come and say, well, like I can't talk about that yet because the budget is not yet. The budget normally should come out in late February sometime. Um, that's not going to happen again this year. Uh, but you can't always keep saying that. You, you, you have to do better than that, really, I think, than to create a message, create some buzz, create some interest, rather than uh, I can't talk about specifics. The specifics we're hearing about buzz-wise, definitely not out loud and at the podium anywhere, are that um, major, major, major cuts are coming Um in the budget, they're going to decommission a number of ships under this divest to invest attitude. Um, you did hear the in the congressional um, discussion with uh, Congress uh, Congress people Luria and Gallagher spoke, and they 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 they're aware of what might be coming here, and they talked about a bloodbath that's coming, and that's that's the buzzword. People shake their heads all over at ships that are going to be decommissioned long before their time. You would imagine it's Service Navy Association focused on ships. That's not going to go over very well. So that, that wasn't what you heard. But you also did not hear leadership preparing people for that. I mean, if uh, there was really nothing, what's what's new? Um, is there any course changes coming? There was it was the the displays on the floor. There was ver there was almost nothing new. Um, stuff that we saw at the Sea Air Space exhibit in uh, August. Um, and so, like, what was new? Where where were the new messages? Where was uh, where was the fire? Where was something? The, the warnings, the fire, the. And I, I think I think that was missing overall. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I will point to. I mean, in, in the I guess in the scope of that. Um, you know, Vice Admiral Roy Kitchener, the, the SWO boss, wrote out, um, you know, his new document, Surface Warfare, the Competitive Edge, um, which essentially is, a, um, I guess, a laundry list of things that the Surface Navy has been doing or people think that they've been doing, but it, it, it signs people up to be responsible for, for those things. I mean, it has five lines of effort and I, I applaud him for identifying the five lines of effort and for identifying who the stakeholders are and, and putting a dot on them. I, I think it'll be in order to sort of prove critics wrong that this was just more of the same. I hope next year's speech goes right down that laundry list and calls people out for, uh, you know, for not doing everything that they should and, and, right. you know, praises people that, um, that, that are doing it. 
Um, again, a, another um, strong speech from the CNO that we heard uh, from him two years ago. Um, but when we heard that strong speech two years ago, for the next six months, I mean, he was kind of on a on a milk carton uh, when it came to being the strongest advocate for the Naval Service. So hopefully, again, what could be new? I hope we'll hear that same sort of, you know, table beating and foot stomping uh, from the CNO over the next six months instead of, you know, him disappearing into uh, into the clutter. I hope so, too. I really do. Okay, folks. Well, that'll do it for this week. Coverage of the Surface Navy Association Symposium was made possible by our sponsors, Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Missiles and Defense. For more information, please visit RaytheonMissilesAndDefense.com and HuntingtonIngalls.com. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Report Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Yay!